This podcast should not be considered as medical or legal advice. If you are looking for such advice, then do contact a professional. But please find someone that has a brain and can think critically about what's going on in the world today. This is the Collective Resistance Podcast with your hosts, Leo and Fabiola. We will be discussing why we find ourselves resisting the narratives of the common collective, as well as why the common collective resists new information. Hello, everybody. This is Leo and Fabi's here as well. How are you doing, Fabi? Hey, Leo. I'm good. How are you? Doing fantastic. And we're here for another episode, which we do have a special guest that we're going to be bringing on shortly. But we wanted to lead off with uh, some content that uh, she participated in the creation of. And uh, Christine Massey is her name. She is a biostatician who is based out of Canada that uh, is kind of in the uh, the sphere of influence and discussion because uh, she has used the freedom of information uh, requests or demand, if you will, uh, with governments across the world to ask them about uh, whether they have actual samples of an isolated virus related to SARS-CoV-2. And so as we're going to... As well as other viruses. As well as other viruses. And we're going to get into that. Uh, but along with those freedom of information requests, she also has uh, had success in actually having some email correspondence with several of the people that uh, really kind of make up uh, some of the main faces in the medical freedom movement, if mm -hmm. you will. Uh, individuals like Dr. Peter McAuliffe. Uh, uh, Dr. Mercola. Dr. Mercola. Dr. Michael Eden. And so forth and so on. And so she actually has taken those email exchanges and she has published those on her website for people to read through. And there was one particular one with Dr. Michael Eden. And if you remember, we actually featured Dr. Eden, I think it was uh, around summer of 2021, uh, I, I think I remember when that was. And he uh, used to be the VP of drug research at Pfizer for many years. And uh, he uh, actually had some concerns around the uh, uh, RNA, the mRNA uh, vaccines that were being Lots developed. Of concerns. Yeah. And, and he's become a, uh, uh, a little bit of a lightning rod uh, as far as uh, really uh, uh, criticizing those vaccines. Um, and the. Um the measures they're taking, the lockdown. Yes, yes, the, the, the measures that governments are taking, uh, the kind of tyrannical rule. And so uh, she had an exchange with him, and we're just going to read it, and then uh, it's probably going to pop a lot of questions in your mind, but we just thought it was really interesting. And then uh, when we dive into the interview with Christine, uh, she talks about that exchange a little bit, and we go into it more at that point where people can get a little bit additional uh, uh, information. So uh, in this particular read-through that we're going to do, I'm going to uh, read the responses from Dr. Michael Yeadon. Fabi's going to read the responses from Christine Massey. And uh, we'll go from there. So, Fabi, you want to go ahead and lead it off? Yeah. So this first correspondence is an email that Christine sent to Dr. Michael Eden on May 28th, 2022. So fairly recently. And the subject of the email says, proof of transmissible COVID-19 agent? Question mark. And this is what she says. 
Hi, Dr. Eden. In this recent interview, you talked about transmissible agents and infectious agents and said that replicating viruses cause the common cold. You also mentioned scores of other viruses. Many times you made references to viruses. Then later you claim that your arguments don't rely on the existence of viruses. You then stated that you think that SARS-CoV-2 does exist and that every time the virus replicates, it makes typographical errors. Later you spoke of Ebola virus. You spoke of viruses a great deal throughout the interview. I understand that you are tired of being asked about the existence of viruses, but as long as you continue to talk about them as though they do exist, you'll be challenged to provide proof. Do you have any scientific evidence providing the existence of any virus or any other transmissible agent that is released from airways and causes colds or COVID-19? Question mark. Do you have any evidence showing that COVID-19 is a unique disease or that there is one specific cause of the ca uh, cause of the cases that were actually sick? Question mark. Do you have scientific proof of transmiss transmission for colds or COVID-19? Question mark. Also, how do you know that avoiding sick people is an instinctive behavior and not the result of a cultural conditioning? Question mark. Thank you and best wishes, Christine. And Michael Eden responds on Saturday, May 28th, 2022. Dear Christine, thank you for your message. I do not doubt your sincerity for a moment. However, your opening question only reinforces the problem we all face in the existential question about viruses. You asked if I was aware of unequivocal proof of existence. My reply is no, I don't think there is such evidence. However, I'm not the one claiming they do exist. It's you who claim they don't. So I reject your assertion that the burden of proof is on me. I choose to focus on things like masks don't work and lockdowns are illogical and ineffective. Here's the problem, though. The absence of evidence in no way serves as proof of absence. It just doesn't. You'll probably have heard the saying, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It certainly helps if your initial position is that you're skeptical, but please recognize that the other side know deep in their hearts that they do exist. Even if they're wrong, the belief is strong. Arguing that the experimental evidence for their existence is weak will persuade not a single person. Many will even cite evidence supporting existence which the non-expert will probably be unable to refute. And so it goes around and again, beliefs aren't enough. Proving the absence of something is impossible using the scientific method. The best the scientific method can do is fail to find evidence supportive of their presence, not the same thing at all. That's why I mention the doubts. I have them, those doubts. But I assure you, anyone who states with certainty that they don't exist isn't doing so based on the scientific method. I've been around this debate dozens of times. I realized on the first occasion it arose that it wasn't possible to resolve definitively. Those who believe they exist will not yield. That's not unreasonable. They're awaiting proof of non-existence. That's not available and will never be. So what do I do? I think rather effectively I've proven that governments and their scientific medical advisors have lied repeatedly about everything. No one has refuted a single claim I've made in my COVID lies summary. Here's a version a month or two old. 
in the end, the arguments about the existence or non-existence of SARS-CoV-2 cannot rescue us. I've explained why it can't. Which part of the argument don't you accept? The, I'm ultimately not much interested either. I do not care if they exist or if they don't exist. I've been repeatedly at pains to show you this cannot be resolved negatively using the scientific method. Continuing to assert otherwise eventually makes me concerned that the no virus people care more about the argument that they care than they care about actual freedom because they're not helping me, that's for sure. Humanity is, I believe, about to lose its freedom in a way from which I doubt escape is possible. If I'm right, that loss of freedom will be used by the tyrants to kill us, our children and grandchildren. Now that I do care about. If I lose my life in the attempt to stop them, I'll regard it as a fair trade. I ask the viruses don't exist folk to put down their weapons, paradoxically often directed at people like me, and for the duration of the truly existential struggle to remain free, redirect all their strength, determination, and considerable skills of persuasion into persuading the unaware that they're being lied to, copious examples provided above. I genuinely believe they will convert many more people to deep concern and anger at what's being done to them and by whom than they will with the argument that viruses that ultimately will be declined as insufficient. I wish you the best of good outcomes. I pray daily for that. Best wishes, Mike, Dr. Mike Eden. P.S. May I share this exchange on Telegram? P.S. I've still not had anyone explain convincingly with evidence how it is that common colds appear exactly as you'd predict if it in fact were if there were transmissible agents involved as i separate matter no one has offered i'm sorry as a separate matter no one has offered a satisfactory explanation for the high rate of appearance in blood and subjects who've been diagnosed as having had covid-19 t cells which respond vigorously to short lengths of protein predicted to be part of SARS-CoV-2. Such T-cells were mostly absent from at least half of those who said they'd never had COVID-19. These are quite troublesome observations, and they've been made by many people. Of course, the easiest explanation is viruses. Now, that may well be wrong, but I hope you can see how lacking in persuasiveness the arguments about the non-existence of viruses are. There's no doubt that frankly silly experiments are repeatedly used by those claiming they do exist. If I was an editor or peer reviewer of such manuscripts, I'd point out the logical failings of their draft manuscripts and reject them. I'm in no way defending this bunch of frauds. From Christine. Dear Dr. Eaton, scientific debate and asking for proof of claims is not a personal attack. With all due respect, your insinuation sounds like a cop-out, and you repeat, repeatedly made statements in your recent interview that are not remotely supported by science. I can assure you that you and your virus colleagues do not have a monopoly on noticing the tyranny and caring about the future, future of humanity. We have the same motivations, except the no-virus crowd chooses not to reinforce the core lie while we work for a better future. The truth will set you free is my model. Truth matters even when it doesn't get you the immediate results. Thanks in part to the stubbornness of the virus pushers against clot shots. In case you haven't noticed, monkeypox virus propaganda is now being ramped up. The virus-based fraud that's been causing carnage across this planet for decades carries merrily along. 
I think you are underestimating the ability of people to apply simple logic. Yes, it's difficult for many people in the beginning due to decades of conditioning, but then again, lots of people who initially thought the no virus argument was crazy have since seen the light. Seen the light. This is because the no virus camp doesn't rely on beliefs and we only have to point out some irrefutable facts. It really comes down to the simple point that no one on the planet has demonstrated that they even have a pure sample of any alleged virus. Without purified samples to characterize, extract nucleic acid from, and perform control experiments on, the entire narrative collapses. Many lay people are now able to argue this issue very skillfully and articulately. More are coming forward all the time and the rate of conversion would only accelerate. A public health inspector of over 20 years told me that she quit her job on principle largely due to the FOIAs. A former infectious disease expert has told me he now has to rethink everything due to the FOIAs. I've had emails from many MDs, including some in the Doctors for COVID Ethics group, who aren't ready to go public yet, but thank me and encourage me to keep going with this. And God only knows the number of people who've seen the light, thanks to experts like Stephen Lanka, Andy Kaufman, Tom Cowan, the Baileys, David Resnick, the Perth group, etc., etc. Yes, it is true. True, that lack of evidence is not strictly speaking proof of absence, but given that the existing evidence is so incredibly weak and anti-scientific in nature, when virology relies on wild assumptions and the viral genomes are so clearly made up, it stretches the imagination of reasonable people to think that maybe SARS-CoV-2, HIV, HPV, etc., etc., actually do exist. And maybe doesn't cut it when approving vaccines, closing businesses, mandating masks, distancing, etc. And the onus is on those who say there is a virus to prove it. I do appreciate that you were inserting alleged here and there in your recent interview. It's a step in the right direction. Please consider there is no need for someone like you to say viruses don't exist. I'm comfortable saying it because the specific viruses we've been told about are clearly made up. You could simply point out the demonstrable facts that virology is not a science. No alleged virus has ever, ever been proven to exist. Or just mention SARS-CoV-2 for now. And that the existing evidence is shockingly weak. That's all it would take and no one could prove you wrong. There is nothing reasonable or scientific about someone sticking to a belief until someone can disprove it. Uh, read your postscript. The fact that you haven't heard anyone explain convincingly how it is that common codes appear as they do it hardly justific is as they do is hardly justification for you to carry on with your wild claims about viruses. What a bizarre suggestion, specifically coming from a scientist. A fraudulent, meaningless diagnosis allegedly correlating with T cell in blood that responds to short length of protein is just that 
a correlation between a fraudulent test and T-cells. It's hardly proof of a specific virus existing and causing a specific disease. How anyone could be troubled by such observations or conclude that the easiest explanation is viruses is beyond me. A logical man or woman does not have difficulty countering such arguments. Logic, please. So, Mike, if you were an editor or peer-reviewed on silly virology manuscripts, you would point out the logical failings and reject them. Yay! But when those silly manuscripts have actually made their way into journals and used as the basis of worldwide terrorism, are you sure you're not defending this bunch of frauds? Yes, do feel free to publish this exchange. I think I would do the same. Best wishes, Christine. And Dr. Eden replies on Saturday, May 28th. Thank you, Christine. I've explained in depth why I have taken the stance I have. I read your argument with interest. You've been very clear. I think it's best we each operate as best we can. I'm not your adversary. Best wishes, Mike. And then Christine, she ended. Best wishes, Mike. Christine. So we just thought it was an interesting exchange that we wanted to uh, include to give you a flavor of the type of things that she's capturing and then she's uh, publishing for, for the world to see. And this directly ties into the conversation that we discussed with her at length here uh, that we'll begin right now. All right. Well, we are here today with a special guest. We have Christine Massey, who is a former biostatistician in Canada, who has been collating hundreds of freedom of information responses over the last two years to show that health and science institutions worldwide are unable to prove the existence of the SARS-CoV-2 or any other alleged virus. So her website is fluoridefreepeel.ca, and we will link to it in the show notes. And Christine, welcome to the Collective Resistance Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So, Christine, we wanted to start out. Uh, we know you, you've done other speaking engagements, and and it might be getting old, but can you tell <laughs> us a little bit about your journey to where you're at today? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, well, I'll start before COVID started. Um, at that time, I was uh, I had been a safe drinking water advocate for about ten years. So I lived in um, the region of Peel in Ontario, I'm in Canada, and it was a fluoridated community. So um, I had been engaged in that battle for, like I said, about 10 years and gradually become more and more involved in that. And um, so I had dealt with the public health community in that regard for a number of years, and I had seen just how stubborn they are when they have an agenda and they're fixated on it. And it doesn't matter what evidence you show them or what you know questions you raise or you point out the lack of evidence um, to to prove their claim that something's safe and effective. They just they don't want to hear it. They don't care. They they have double standards and yeah. So I had been dealing with that and I had been watching what was going on with the vaccines as well. I wasn't very involved with that, but I was keeping an eye too on that. And so the fact that they don't do um, randomized controlled placebo study, you know, studies for testing out um, what they call vaccines, things like that. And so um, when COVID started, when they started talking about the virus and gradually it was becoming more and more serious, 
I wasn't buying into the agenda. I just found it hysterical because in where I lived, all these years, I had myself and colleagues were raising concerns about the fluoride added to the drinking water. It's not just fluoride, it's an industrial waste chemical that they mm -hmm. use that has arsenic and lead and other things, right? Mm -hmm. So um, basically, it's a huge uncontrolled experiment when they're fluoridating people's water because there have never been any controlled experiments to show that fluorid fluoridated water is safe or effective. But they tell you it's safe and effective and safe and effective. So um, so we were on them for years and years, like you're, you're literally experimenting on people, you're literally violating the Nuremberg Code, um, you know, you're just throwing caution to the wind and they're putting the onus on us to like prove 100% that damage is occurring, which actually you can because even they admit that something called dental fluorosis occurs as a result of too much fluoride, yes. but they just, yeah, like, well, that doesn't matter. <laughs> so um, they're actually damaging the, this, the very body part that they say that they're helping. But anyway, so, so when they, in my community, when COVID started and they started shutting things down, they kept telling us, oh, we're acting out of, out of an abundance of caution. I kept hearing this abundance of caution. And I thought, you have got to be kidding me. You're right. the people. <laughs> I've been fighting for the last 10 years to exercise some caution, right? I thought, uh -huh. if there, like, it was just so ridiculous. So, and then, you know, just looking at the influenza numbers compared to these COVID numbers, like we had way more influenza. And supposedly every year there was a new influenza virus. Nobody was freaking out over that and saying that we need to shut the world down right. because maybe this one's going to be really bad. So I just, it wasn't making any sense to me on any level. And then uh, I was learning about the PCR tests and realizing that those were highly problematic. And then someone sent me a video by Dr. Andrew Kaufman, a presentation by him, and I had never heard of him before, but um, thank goodness I opened it and took a look at it. And these were a revelation. Um, I, if people are not familiar about this issue already, there's a handful of people that are really, really good at explaining it, and I can do pretty well, but there's other people that are even better, so he would be one of them. That's Dr. Andrew Kaufman, mm -hmm. um, and then there's Dr. Thomas Cowan and a number of other people. But I, I got this video from Dr. Andrew Kaufman, and in it, he was explaining in his first COVID presentation, he was talking about the fact, he mentioned the fact that the alleged virus hadn't been isolated. And he didn't go into a lot of detail yet. He was focusing on the PCR tests more, I think, in that first presentation. And that was really helpful too, to learn more about the PCR tests. And then he did a second presentation. And in this one, he was going into this virus isolation issue. And he was explaining that there's these publications saying that this alleged new virus, this coronavirus, um, had been isolated, but he was going through the methods. I think there were four papers at the time and he went through the methods briefly, but giving people an idea of what had actually been done in those papers and they hadn't isolated anything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when, when someone uses the word isolation, we think it means that they separated it from everything else. Right. right? And, and you, you have a lot of uh, experience uh, reading through methods before, right? 
to, in to studies. some degree because yeah I, I had worked as a biostatistician and with cancer researchers so yeah so i didn't even think to mention that but that's what i had done um for a number of years before covid started too i had done that professionally so yeah i was i was you know i mean going into the virology was of a, a whole different right. area that i wasn't used to looking at um so there was a terminology that was new to me that I had to learn. But Dr. Kaufman had done such a good job of explaining the basics to people that he made it so that, you know, these studies that I would never have even entered my mind to go and look for, I wouldn't have even known what to look for. Um, he explained it so well that then I had the confidence to look them up and he was giving references for certain studies. So mm -hmm. I just looked at them and I could see what he was saying. And and what I'm telling you now, like thousands of people around the world have done the same thing. So we look in the papers and you have to read the actual methods because the title says that they isolated a virus and that they sequenced a virus. Mm -hmm. And if you read the abstract, you know, it sounds like that's what they did. But when you get to the methods section, well, that's what you have to really, that's one of the first things you should be reading in a paper before you read the results you need to know okay what did they actually do what right. how did they go about doing what they did if you just read the methods you you might not have a proper understanding of the paper so it was just as he was explaining that they're not using these standard techniques that can be used in a laboratory if you want to purify something that's very very tiny mm -hmm. so you so you take a sample from a patient bodily fluid of some sort or some tissue, and you think that there's something very small in there, something new, you would need to be able to focus in on that specific thing so that you can analyze it from different perspectives. One of those things being um, to sequence it. Uh -huh. So you, you need to get a purified sample of it so that you can, you know, when you're looking at its different qualities, you're just looking at that thing you don't you don't want a bunch of other stuff mixed in because exactly. it confuse your analysis yeah so i always say to people you know for example if you were going to weigh yourself you wouldn't get on a scale with friends and family members <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's you know, great that analogy things you wouldn't know who weighs what you'd yes. be like well okay the whole group of them weighs this much but so it's just common sense um mm -hmm. So in the titles, it sounds like they isolated something. It mm -hmm. sounds like they end up with a purified um, specimen, which they could then use to characterize the virus and they could extract the genetic material so that they would know that whatever genetic material, it's coming from that specific thing. Because again, if you just take um, of some bodily fluid from a, a patient, and you extract all the genetic material from that, it's going to be coming from all sorts of different sources. Exactly. It's coming from the, the, the human themselves and any bacteria and fungi and anything else, you know, and apparently mm -hmm. there even be, that might be yeah. inhaled. Anything, right. Yeah. Anything they inhaled. So, mm -hmm. so it would be, it doesn't make any sense. Um, to extract all the genetic material from soup of material, you want to extract it from a purified sample of right. one specific thing mm -hmm. so that you know where it came from. Okay, so that's common sense. Like I think most people, when they hear this, they can understand it, makes sense. But it turns out that what they do in virology, um, they do nothing 
nothing even approaching <laughs> the common Social sense of the word of isolation complete, yeah uh, yeah they go in the complete opposite direction actually so they have a patient specimen and they don't even try to look in it they don't try to find a virus in there mm -hmm. the excuses they give is if they say they wouldn't be able to find it so they don't bother looking mm -hmm. which and i don't want to gloss over that point because that point alone that alone is huge yeah. it's huge because we're told millions and millions of people have been exposed to this virus if you get exposed to it, um, it starts replicating in your cells. Mm -hmm. There would be millions and millions and millions and millions of these things. And then they, you know, bust open a cell and they go into other cells and, and then they, you know, and then you're breathing them to other people. And we're taking all these measures to distance and wear masks and sanitize because even the people who aren't sick are potentially spewing it all right. around themselves, right? We're just these walking petri dishes. And, yes, gross. Right? We're so gross. Yeah, we're so we're so dirty and dangerous. So, so and yeah, and remember, like all the hysteria over the masks. Mm -hmm. I remember where I used to live. A counselor actually said during a council meeting that if you get caught dropping your mask on the ground, like you, we will go after you for uh, some kind of hazardous waste. And I'm thinking, are you oh kidding me? Gosh. These are the people that put the hazardous waste in our drinking right. water every right. day. And then they're tr they're acting like you're some kind of terrorist if, God forbid, you, you drop your mask on the ground or something, right? Yeah, the irony. So, is those masks, <laughs> yeah, those masks that supposedly are so dangerous and, you know, they wouldn't be able to find a virus there or or even in a from the person's snot or, or lung fluid. Mm -hmm. So this is huge that that alone, they just don't even bother looking. So then, okay, what do they do? So they say, well, we would have to give the virus a chance to replicate, to, to grow mm -hmm. um, in order, you know, they make it sound like they need it to grow. So then they have a better chance of actually finding it. Okay. So they take a patient sample and they do a cell culture. So what they do is they'll put it in a dish with a cell line. And normally what they use in the vast majority of the time, it's viral cells, which are monkey kidney cells. Mm -hmm. They're the mm -hmm. epithelial cells from a uh, kidney epithelial cells from an African green monkey. So again like this is really weird because they told us it already replicated that's the whole idea it already replicated in the people mm -hmm. supposedly it already cultured in the people but mm, they can't find it there so they're going to put it with some monkey kidney cells which are not host cells right mm -hmm. and somehow this is going to help them find it because it'll grow better in the monkey kidney <laughs> yes. cells right like it, it doesn't make any sense and then because um you're just making a more complex mixture right like mm -hmm. you're now the if there was a virus it's getting lost in even more you know material in something that supposedly it shouldn't grow that well in and then because the the cell line needs nutrition they add fetal bovine serum so cow material mm -hmm. from, from a baby cow apparently it's extracted in a really horrific manner according to Dr. Stefan Longa. Mm -hmm. 
But um, so now you've got a mixture of material from a human and a cow and a monkey. It's a zoo. So now it's just, even, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's even a zoo, exactly. So it's just wildly complex. And all these things could have, again, the bacteria, fungi, like contaminants of different sources. Right. So who knows how many different sources of genetic material you have at this point. Mm -hmm. And then they say that, well, they don't want bacteria and fungi growing in this mixture because that would complicate things anymore, which does make sense. So they add um, antibiotics and antifungals. They, they add um, drugs that are specifically known to be toxic to kidneys. Mm -hmm. So it's monkey kidney cells and they're putting... <laughs> A toxin chemicals. for <laughs> They're toxic. Yes, exactly. And then they lower the... So the fetal bovine serum is there to feed the monkey kidney cells. And there's a certain um, amount of like a maintenance amount they would use if they just wanted to maintain a cell line and keep it healthy. Mm -hmm. So what they do when they're doing this viral culture, they lower the amount of fetal bovine serum. So now the monkey kidney cells are not getting their full amount of nutrition that they normally get. It's in a starvation state, you could say, mm -hmm. a fraction of what they normally would get. So you've got toxic drugs that are specifically toxic to kidney cells and you're malnourishing these monkey kidney cells. And you've got this wildly complex mixture and they still don't try to purify anything. Mm -hmm. Their story was, well, we have to give it a chance to grow. Okay, well, they still don't, but they still don't try to purify something out. Yeah. So what they actually do Instead, um, they watch the cells for several days and they're looking for what they call cytopathic effects. And it means basically the cells are starting to break down. Mm -hmm. So they have starved and malnourished a cell line. And when, the, when they see the signs of the cells breaking down, they call that virus isolation. <laughs> So now let me ask you a question on that, on that front, <laughs> because this just kind of dawned on me and, uh, um, you know, we talk about terms in science, right. And then I know in, in hearing some of your other interviews and whatnot, you know, you know, you brought up the fact that, you know, in, in virology, they've changed the definition, right. Of isolation. Is that a, uh, just something I haven't looked into is, is that, um, our terms in virology, are they actually annotated anywhere where they actually show because obviously so you, they have a virology dictionary a virology <laughs> dictionary oh, <laughs> well i've heard i haven't seen firsthand um but apparently there are textbooks where they talk about isolation and they make it sound like they do actually isolate things mm -hmm. you know they talk about standard laboratory methods and give the impression that that kind of thing is being done but they don't actually do it mm -hmm. and apparently there's confusion like i've seen um, at least one virologist, I forget his name, um, he was in a video by Dr. Sam Bailey. Mm. And he was saying how even in the virology community, like some of their terminology is kind of fuzzy. It's not always clearly defined. But what what they do with these cell cultures, that is pretty consistent. Like there's details here and there as to what exact drugs they use or just how much they lower the, the fetal bovine serum. But it's the same basic recipe where you take a sample from the 
patient, you put it in the monkey cells, you add some fetal worldwide serum and you add the drugs. Mm -hmm. There, some papers are really, really sketchy. And sometimes you'll see a publication where it's not really like a full study with right. all the full methods. It's like a, a brief letter or something like that. And mm -hmm. they they don't go into a lot of the details, but this is the standard recipe. It's slight variations here and there on mm -hmm. this basic recipe. So literally they do this one procedure and based on it, they conclude, yes, there's a virus. It was in the patient and now it's in the cell culture. It caused the damage to the monkey cells and they have isolated it. All of this based on just damaging some cells and, and watching the fact that they damaged, mm -hmm. well, damaged them. And I, I love, I think it was in the exchange with, with Dr. Yeadon, you, you had said that you know, cause he was saying you're going down your path, he's going down his and, and you had mentioned, you know, it would be helpful if you would at least, you know, like someone reviewing a, a, a peer reviewed paper would say, Hey, the methods are flawed in this way. And that's just a fact, you know, you don't yes. have to go into the fact that virology is a fraud and all this. You just need to point out that the, the methods are flawed. How come you can't do that? And so I, I wondered about the term isolation, just getting anyone to comment on, don't you think it's a little bit sketchy that you, that virology has changed the definition? Isn't that, doesn't that give you a yeah. major red flag in and of itself? Yeah. And yeah, because, um, I mean, there are more and more doctors and scientists these days, um, opening to the idea and, but it's been a lot, huge effort, right? Like a yeah. lot of work. And this is like more than two years in, and I know a lot of them are aware of that, they're aware of this situation and what Michael Yeadon said, and I, I can put the, um, is there a chat? Do we, yeah, I can put the, um, yeah. the links to my website and then people can find all these things that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I had an email exchange with Dr. Michael Yeadon and it's on my website and I share it, you know, and I'm not trying to embarrass him or anything. It's just, right. it's all about public education because we have, all of these issues with virology and we're just getting started like that's the cell culture and then there's the whole what the sequencing mm -hmm. etc so we have these like major major problems and then it's and the world was turned upside down over this alleged covid and then you look and you find out oh my god like literally this is not they don't use scientific method right. in virology right. because the whole thing again going back to the need to have a purified sample you would need it to be able to characterize this particle that you think is a virus um, because you need to be able to distinguish that very tiny thing from other things that are really tiny so that you don't get confused, right? Because you can't just look visually and know, oh, okay, that one's this and this one's <laughs> yeah. that. Like there's a lot, you know, different things. So, so you need to be able to distinguish this allegedly new particle if there is a new particle from all the other tiny particles. But the other thing you need to do is controlled experiments with that purified sample of this particle, because that's how science works. You, you do an experiment and it, whether it's in dishes or it would make more sense to actually use animals. I don't really condone an, animal experiments, but they do animal experiments in virology and other sciences. So if you're going to do that, you would want all the conditions in both groups to be equal. You have an experimental group that gets exposed to the virus and then you have your control group because the whole point is um, 
then you observe the outcomes. And if mm -hmm. the, only the group that got exposed to the possible virus gets sick, then you can conclude that it was that specific thing that caused the effect. Right. If everything is the same in both groups, mm -hmm. if you don't have everything else the same in both groups, if you don't have, if you don't control all the other factors, you can't draw those conclusions because you don't, you don't know what it was, you know, what, what, what was the thing that was different between the two groups? Right. right? Yeah. We don't really, this is a question we've been asking because it seems so obvious. So if you're doing this isolation and you're adding the drugs and you're adding the different, you know, you're adding the, the culture from maybe the sick person or from a human and then all these concoctions, why can't you just not add the human sample or the culture and then just add the other stuff and see what happens? It, it isn't that what isn't that what Dr. Stephen Lanka did? Is a yeah, you mean like to do control? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, controls. Yeah, so they could. I, yeah, so ideally, the the ideal way would be to have a purified um, sample, and that way you could whatever you're going to do in both groups, like the way I look at it, you could take a sample from a healthy person and you could split it in two so that even that it's, you've even got the exact same sample that's going to both groups. And then just in the experimental group, you had the purified virus. Mm -hmm. That would be like, to me, the gold standard way, right? Mm -hmm. But another approach, because they refuse to purify, what they could do is at least Okay, so in, in this group, whether it's animals or they're, if they're doing something in a dish, they're going to use the samples from the COVID patients where they think there's a virus. And then to at least have some control, they could use um, a patient sample from someone that they don't think has COVID. So right. at least you still have all the typical stuff that's in a, in a patient sample so that you're it's a more fair comparison. Right. Yeah, that's true. It's still, it's still, you won't know, you can't know for sure what exactly was different, mm -hmm. but at least it's a lot closer. And the, the, the reason why it could be useful to do this is they might find <laughs> that if they do this, they get the same results in both groups because it's not actually a virus that's causing right. the effects. So if it's a cell culture, they might find they get the cytopathic effects even without adding a sample from an allegedly infected human, or if it was an animal study, same thing, right? So at, at least try to have some controls because if you do get the same effect in both groups and you're gonna go, oh, wait, okay, so my assumption that a virus was causing the difference, you know, if I'm getting it even, if I get the same effect even in the group that was not exposed to someone that we thought had a virus, that should be like a really yeah. big clue right. that maybe it's just all the other stuff that you're doing that is actually causing the effects. So yeah, Dr. Stefan Lanka has done that since the virologists won't do it themselves. Mm -hmm. There's um, Why do amazing... you think, have you asked this question specifically to the, you know, the doctors and experts that you have exchanges with? Why wouldn't this be the standard? Do, do they answer or what kind of questions um, do, do you usually get? I, usually if I'm um, talking to someone like Dr. Yaden, I focus on the isolation part because mm -hmm. with that, I mean, it's just so easy to literally point out. Um, first of all, you can't even have done the characterization step and the sequencing step properly. No, right. 
you know, before you even get to the control experiments, you haven't even identified a specific new thing. Um, so I don't get, I don't usually go into conversations as much about what they could be doing. I oh, focus gotcha. more on pointing out because what they could do, um, it, I mean, it's good to talk about it and point out they could have done that. And Dr. Stefan Lanka did do it. And when right. he did it, even without adding something from an allegedly COVID patient, he still got the same effects. Mm -hmm. So that's Thank really you. important to know. But I tend to focus more on just like, what they did do, what is the basis of this whole COVID phenomena that we've lived through for two years now is ridiculous. It's just completely ridiculous. And Dr. Lanka calls it anti-science and that's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. And I keep, he, he pointed out, they actually disproved themselves in all their own studies because when you read the methods and you see what they're doing, like when we get to the sequencing part and I talk about that too, you'll see like, they tell us that they sequenced a virus, but they haven't even shown that there is a virus to sequence or that yeah. there's a specific yeah. particle. They literally just make up these sequences on their computer. Mm -hmm. So in silico. in silico, exactly. So, but just to go back for a minute to what you're saying, um, you know, so we've been, yeah, so we've all been living through this horror story for um, two years, two years <laughs> that has yeah, affected so many people and, and like everybody in so many different ways. And, and then, and you discover, oh my God, like these methods aren't even scientific. Literally, they're not scientific. They haven't proven anything. This is the most important thing to talk about when it comes to COVID. Like if they haven't even shown that there's a virus, obviously there's no scientific basis for anything else. And you don't right. need to get into these discussions about masks. I don't have the patience for it. Like, right. yeah. like oh my God, that's so exhausting to try to argue with people about yes. a mask. And people get these heated discussions, right? And, and you know, there's how many different vaccines now and all the different alternative treatments for yeah. a virus that hasn't been shown to exist. Like, I don't have time or energy. Or the gain of function. <laughs> the gain of function, exactly. Like, is it man-made or is it natural? It's like, nobody found any virus, period. So there's Yeah, let's start there. We, we have, to, we, there, we have exactly. to play the right ball game. We're not even playing the right sport. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, people, they do all kinds of things in labs, and there's labs around the world, but that's not proof that anyone actually created something that fits the definition of a virus right and when you look at um these so-called gain-of-function studies or the patents like there's a patent supposedly on the 2003 SARS coronavirus right yeah. mm -hmm. but the problem is when you go to that patent and you read again the methods you find they're talking about the same cell culture nonsense so they didn't. It just works so well. It just, <laughs> they yeah, just keep using it. They just—it's literally the exact same thing. So no, um, and that would explain why they could patent something that supposedly is natural because they didn't discover a natural thing. They're just yeah. describing their procedures and making up genomes, and it's completely nonsensical. So, um, so yeah, so so when you know that, and like my. I got onto the freedom of information, which we'll talk about. Um, you know, you naturally want everybody to know because so that we don't all waste our time on all these other topics, all these exactly. other side issues that just go to the core problem. Let's address 
the, the elephant in the room. They didn't even discover a virus. But a lot of um, a lot there's a lot of experts out there who are aware of this, and you know they're willing to talk about. I'm thinking of the people who are known and that oppose the measures and the tyranny to various degrees, but they won't talk about this specific issue. There's mm -hmm. most of them will not do it, and I think the reason is. I think because most people are comfortable complaining about the government. You right. know, we can all agree that the government has gone too far. They, they've overstepped. They're, you know, there's all these, all these different reasons and in approving these injections and calling them vaccines and the whole thing's ridiculous. So, most people can, or at least most people who are open-minded and who are looking and not just. Um, not just consuming the mainstream media, but if they're looking at the alternative sources, they realize, hey, there's a big problem here. Or if you're just thinking for yourself. But most people are comfortable to complain about the government. But when you ask a scientist or a doctor to consider that there isn't even a virus, and then one of the things that inevitably comes up is, well, how did they do it with other viruses? Exactly. That's just a natural question, right? <laughs> yes. just naturally I mean, I got up. all these other vaccines. <laughs> I know, yeah. So some of some of my colleagues have argued, you know, it's too much to try to tell people that virology in general is bogus. Like that's too much for people to take in all at once. Yeah, I but heard that from uh, uh, Del Big Tree. I think he had Kaufman on. Oh, maybe. And after that, that's one of the things he said. It's just hard to get people from to, here yeah. to there. So yeah. I'm just going to focus on vaccines are dangerous and yeah. we'll still talk about this virus. <laughs> we'll still talk. Yeah, yes. they talk about it. And I have a major problem with that. But I think it's um it's number one what you just said that they think it's too difficult. I there's so many things I want to say about this. Yes. So um it just there's so many um aspects to it. So one is that yes it's difficult but that's the reality that we're living with. And if we don't address it now, it's not going to get easier as the tyranny sets in. Mm -hmm. It's not going to get easier. Like we have, I I think we have to deal with this now. Yes. And, and just, it's hard. And it's not, um, you know, you don't, no one wants to be looked at as a nutcase. Some of my family members think, I'm crazy so that's you know that's hard but I mean I think it'll be a lot harder if we just keep going along with the narrative and we have to live with ourselves knowing that we know something and we're not going to talk about it exactly. and like I'm tell people yeah because the natural question is well what do they do with the other viruses you have to address it because that's just a natural question that comes up and you can't lie to people and say oh the other ones are fine and it's the exact same <laughs> problem with one. the other ones too <laughs> yeah it turns out it's actually virology in general and since the 50s with the john enders paper where he supposedly discovered the measles um virus that that's where all the cell culturing methodology got started and in his paper, he did do a control and he found that he got basically the same results with the control group. And he acknowledged that, okay, so this is not conclusive, more study is needed. But then apparently later he got a Nobel Prize for another paper 
Mm-hmm. And when someone gets a Nobel Prize, people tend not to question anything that they did. <laughs> so somehow, but it still doesn't excuse what happened. But anyway, this is what the virologists have been doing ever since. And if you go to the so-called viruses before measles, they were doing equally ridiculous things. Like mm-hmm. it was different methods, but it was always ridiculous, mm-hmm. not scientific. Right. So, so you have to, that naturally comes up. And um, so when you think about, okay, even before COVID, there was these issues with vaccine injuries or what they call vaccines. Mm-hmm. That was going on for decades and decades or hundreds of years, you know, like so-called vaccines have been around for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And then gradually they're ramping it up and the children are getting exposed to more and more every year, especially in the U.S. So there was already this huge issue with people getting hurt by injections. But all these years, most of us thought that the viruses actually existed. It didn't enter my mind to question whether the viruses existed. But now when you know, and then you go, okay, so all the tyranny and all the damage from these fake injections, it's not just a COVID problem. Like it started a long time ago. Yeah. It was already going on. We just didn't know. And it's more obvious now because, you know, COVID was so huge. But if you stop and think, you know, these children being most parents feel they have to get their children vaccinated yeah. with all these injections to send them to school mm-hmm. and then sometimes to travel or to for an adult to work somewhere you know i when i worked at a hospital they wanted me to get different injections and they did not want to answer my questions about them and i ended mm-hmm. up getting an exemption just because they didn't want to answer the questions right so how many people have been hurt for years and years and years and they don't know it not only do they not realize maybe connect it with the injections but they don't even know that there wasn't even there wasn't even a virus to get protected from in the first place mm-hmm. like this is huge this is huge and i mean you could go even further and then look at problems in medicine more generally but i i stick to the it's a lot of work doing what we've been doing with the the virology piece of it. So I've mm-hmm. been focusing on that, but, um, yeah, so let's go into that. So you've been yeah. doing a lot of work in that front <laughs> to actually not only serve notices to public officials that they're infringing on people's rights, but you also are actively pursuing, um, these health agencies to actually show that they have samples of this virus. So can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this began in the first, I first started doing this in May of 2020. And this was a result of watching that um, second presentation by Dr. Andrew Kaufman that I was mentioning, one where he explained the issue so clearly. So I started looking at papers and, and I was on social media talking with people about it too. And so any, anyone who's challenging me, I would always look at the papers, you know, I didn't just, I didn't just go by what Dr. Kaufman said and Mm-hmm. You know, I actually checked the papers for myself. I was like, yeah, you know, this is, it's what he says. And so I, I'll just explain briefly freedom of information. Uh, probably most people know by now, but mm-hmm. it's a process that's in a lot You'll of countries. You'll be surprised how many people don't. Okay. <laughs> okay. So a lot of countries, Canada, the U.S., a lot of countries um, have legislation. It, it goes by different names, but often it's something to do with freedom of information or access to information or right to know 
but it's legislation that um, allows people to request um, publicly funded institutions for records. And the whole idea is to get access to records that are not already publicly available. Mm -hmm. So if you think that an institution, whether it's a government ministry or maybe it's a publicly funded hospital or a university, something along those lines, if you think they have records or, or records about you and you want access to them, you can do a formal request. You can just write to them and ask them too, but the problem is sometimes they just ignore you and right. you don't get the right. answer. Right. So right. with the if you specifically do a freedom of information, I try I'm trying to get away from the word request. That's how they always frame it because of the I'm tr I try to say to them now, I require it's a demand. these records. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I say, I you work for me. As per the legislation. Yeah, it, they're subject to the legislation. I'm not, and mm -hmm. I'm not requesting, I'm not begging, but I'm telling them, like, you need to do this. So you can um, contact the institution. Sometimes they have a form. I just send emails. But anyway, basically, if you tell them clearly what it is that you're looking for and you give your contact information, in the legislation, they'll have a protocol that they need to follow. So they're supposed to get back to you within a certain number of days. That can vary. Some places it's as short as five days. In Canada, it's typically more like 30 days. So you're, you're supposed to get a response and they're supposed to, um, if they don't have the records in Canada, they're supposed to come right out and say it explicitly. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're supposed to communicate with you and facilitate and help you out. Mm -hmm. So... I had done that before on different topics and mainly I had been done, done it with the water fluoridation because one of the things we, we were very concerned about was there were all these um, hundreds of studies linking fluoride exposure to brain damage of different kinds in both animals and humans. And, um, and of those, a subset were some are at much higher exposure levels than are typically humans typically have, but not all of them. And so there was a lot of concern in the safe drinking water movement about the harm that was being done in that way. And so I started doing freedom of information requests, asking these pro-fluoridation institutions to provide studies that show that fluoride exposure during pregnancy um, because there were government funded studies linking fluoride exposure during pregnancy at regular levels, like normal exposures, to lower IQ and increased ADHD in children, in their offspring. So I was asking them for studies that show that fluoride exposure during pregnancy is actually safe with respect to IQ and ADHD, because they keep telling us safe and effective, safe and effective. And we know there's studies that are linking it to harm where's your proof that it's actually safe and they didn't have any right so that was how i used it was to show people and avoid all those arguments about studies i can just show boom here's health canada or here's you know public health ontario saying they don't have a record to show you so with the covid when i realized what was going on with the virus isolation i said okay i'll ask the institutions um if they have any records where this alleged virus really was isolated or purified. So that was what I started doing in May of 2020. And now we are here two years later, and we have a collection of hundreds of responses from around the world because people from around the world have helped out. 
and I became known as the, someone who was collecting these because they said we need all the responses in one spot so people can find them and understand like it, they don't just see one here or one there and forget about them right there's lots of them so we have hundreds of them and on my website right now we have responses from 193 different institutions and we have i think eight responses just from the cdc <clears throat> so there's two well over 200 responses in total but these are from well over 30 countries and it includes the cdc it includes the european cdc it includes ministries of health and the top public health institutions in many different countries it it includes um, numerous institutions that had published studies saying that they had isolated the virus and yet none of them can provide any example like when i contact them i don't just ask for records where they isolated the alleged virus i ask them give me any study that you have in your custody or control that uh, written by anybody anywhere where they actually purified this alleged virus from humans or from from samples taken from humans and they don't have any so basically it's confirming that nobody has found this alleged virus in any human and purified it which is just an initial step to that, that that you would that would just be an initial step so then you would follow through with the other steps and actually carry out some controlled studies so, so now, nobody has done it Christine, can you give people an idea when you make a request, how long does it take to hear back? Um, what did they exactly say on the response? Where's the main focus? No, we have no. Yeah, it, it varies a lot. Um, in Canada, I'm, I'm fortunate in Canada because, like I mentioned um, earlier, in Canada, at least the legislation I've dealt with in Canada, if they don't have the record, they have to say it explicitly. They can't be kind of vague and tell you sometimes they try to other institutions try to give you vague answers so it sounds like well we might have it but if we did it's publicly available already so we don't have to give it to you sometimes they do that kind of response but actually most institutions just admit they don't have it in canada all 48 institutions have admitted they don't have it and then we have uh, some institutions that have tried giving us records that they pass off as though they were responsive to the request, but they don't match what I asked for. So sometimes they give us the cell culture studies or they just give us other studies and or they just give us um, just silly things. I don't know if it's just they don't understand what they're doing or if they they're trying to make it look like they gave us something when they actually didn't. So yeah, we have all around the world. Um, what did the, the CDC, since we're in America, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you got eight responses so, from the CDC. What is the CDC saying? <laughs> would you like me to share my screen? Yeah, that would be show? lovely. Okay, you so need to I'll make sure the host oh, thing okay, to be yeah, able to. Okay, and while you're doing that, I'll um, grab the URL from my website and I'll put that in your chat. Awesome. Do I do but, that in and then participants? so this is the yeah i'm putting in the chat there that's the link to my website and then should i sh share my screen I just yes okay. i just made you the so, host perfect thank you so well i'll take you to my homepage first just to show people how they can find this so my website is fluoride free peel and the reason why all these covid documents are on my 
website it's because when I first started getting the responses I just needed somewhere to put them online so I could share them with people and then mm -hmm. I just thought that's it's brilliant too much, work just to, it's too much work to start another website it's just brilliant so so this is um so it's make sure if you're someone's typing it in it's uo because often people will confuse the spelling and make it ou so it's fluoride free peel peel is just the name of the community that i used to live in and it's ca because i'm in canada and this is my menu it it used to be a lot simpler the covid19 responses are here and this is all other covid related stuff so um here we have communications with Peter McCullough and other freedom advocates. Did um, he respond now, to you? I think he did respond to you. Didn't yeah, I, I've had at least two, two or three exchanges with Dr. McCullough, mm -hmm. challenging him because he keeps um, insisting publicly that there is a virus. And so I've challenged him and so have other people a few times. Uh, just, you know, politely asking Dr. McCullough, you know, this is what you said in this interview, you were talking about yada yada, and do you actually have proof? And he's he fails every time to actually back up what he's saying. Yeah, I heard, I, I read a lot of them saying, "Well, we don't want to spend any energy on that." In one yeah, we don't but that's like the core of the issue. The core issue. And Dr. Michael Eden, I meant to tell you because we brought him up earlier. He he has admitted, and it's not the first time. He's multiple times. He's admitted having doubts. He said in the email that you were mentioning earlier that if he was a peer reviewer on these virus isolation studies, he would be, he would not, um, you know, he would criticize them. He would not um, want to see them published. And I said, well, if that's the case, like now that they are published, why can't you speak out? You don't have to be a peer reviewer to speak out and criticize the study, right? And anyway, we don't see eye to eye on that. He's done a lot of good work in terms of helping people realize that the official narrative is wrong, but at the same time, keeping the story of the virus alive, which I have a problem with, but. Yeah, so but we're gonna the, show us the, the CDC. Yeah, so um, it, this is a very long webpage because there's literally, like I said, hundreds of documents here. And those are all the Canadian ones, they're all in one spot. And then if anybody wants to find a listing, I need to update this, but uh, you can click on this and it'll open an Excel file that gives you the list of all the institutions. Um, and this is a Google Drive folder where you can download compilation PDFs because no one wants to download 200 documents. So you can go there and download, I think there's eight of them and get them that way. And so if we keep scrolling down, uh, down, 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 this is where I'm sharing the responses from other countries. And this is a partial list of the, the countries. So the first um, country I have is the US and I highlight the CDC. So this was our very first response that we ever got. This was my colleague in Michael in New Zealand. He's done a huge amount of work helping with this project. And so the, in their very first response, um, I should have uh, made it so that could be, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just enlarge my screen temporarily so you can see it better. Oh, that's a different one. 
So a search of our records failed to reveal any documents pertaining to our request. That was November 2nd of 2020. So, um, and then what happened? Right so before they the uh, approved the injections. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Use authorization. That's amazing. Then we go to March 1st, 2021, and my colleague, Michael in New Zealand, he was again contacting them and, you know, wanting to make sure, because a lot of people, of course, dispute what we say, and they point us to the CDC website where they say the virus is isolated right. and they link to the CDC study where they pretended to have isolated the virus. So he contacted them to make sure, okay, you still don't actually have any records. And so what has happened is ever since that first response, they would no longer give us a straightforward response where they just say, no, we don't have any records. They try to <laughs> fudge it and say silly things. So here they were giving Michael a hard time, I guess, referring him to the CDC study. And so he's pointing out to them here, look, I'm talking about isolation as per the common everyday meaning of the word, separating mm -hmm. the alleged virus from everything else. And what they responded, they said the definition of isolation provided in the request is outside of what is possible in virology. So not just saying they don't have it, but it's just not they even can't do done, it. period, in virology. Yeah. As viruses need cells to replicate and cells require liquid food. <laughs> this is actually a red herring response uh, comment here because the requests are not asking for records of a virus replicating without host cells. The request has nothing to do with replication. Mm -hmm. it's, it has to do with finding the alleged virus mm -hmm. in a human <laughs> and purifying it. So they give us these responses that it's just like confuses people. So they're talking about the cell culturing um, and they say they might may be isolated from a human clinical specimen by culturing and cell culture, which is the definition of isolation as used in microbiology. So um, they're just, yeah, using a completely different definition, which has, you know, goes in the complete opposite direction of isolating anything. And it's caused all this confusion, you know, that this, this word has been used. Um, and then March 3rd, this was just two days later, I forget why, but he did another request. And again, they're saying the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is the name of the COVID-19 virus, may be isolated from human specimens by culturing in cells. And then they refer us, uh, I guess, to their CDC study, which is just, it's one of these typical studies where they um, do what I was explaining earlier. And they say there's other studies, blah, 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 basically just. Um, so then July 7th, they, oh, I think this one actually they did. They mentioned they, they admitted they had none where it had been purified via maceration, filtration, and use of an ultracentrifuge. That one, um, most of our requests, we don't specify any particular methodology for the purification. Doesn't matter, however you purified it, doesn't matter the methods, just if you have a record where it was purified. But this is one exception where I asked about specific methods and they said no, they didn't have any. And then we have September of 2021. Uh, what did they just say? Maybe isolated by culturing, which is an oxymoron, right? If you're culturing something, you're mixing things together, you're not isolating anything. Uh, and then again in September, 
so what did they say this time they cited a paper oh this one was funny they didn't even cite their own isolation study they cited another paper where the authors didn't, didn't even claim to have isolated a virus <laughs> I, don't know. I, I don't know what happened it's creative it was creative i mean they're just getting bored now, with all now, these other responses so Chris, they, christine let me ask you a question with all this wealth of information that you've collected and put together I, I, we were talking about like Dell Bigtree and some of those personalities. Obviously, he has a big platform. I, I, I just didn't. I don't know. Maybe you already uh, have mentioned it in other interviews. Had you tried? Because they're always about like all these documents and everything and FOIA requests. They're all and, about whistleblowers. Ha, have you ever reached out to them and at least gotten a, a no? We don't want to go down that path. Oh, I haven't talked to Dell directly, but he. I have. Um, emails from his organization, ICANN, uh, like their email address on my freedom of information list. Mm -hmm. I just added it um, without being asked. And I did that with certain other people like Reiner Fulmick, um, uh, who else? Sorry, I'm blanking out. Like uh, Robert, Robert Kennedy F. Jr. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Yeah, exactly. That's who I was trying to think of. Um, so I have Robert F. Kennedy Jr. an email for him and Mary Collins. So Holland, when you send health defense, when you send the um, the well, we don't want to call it request, but the freedom <laughs> of information uh, to these institutions, you basically are copying these other people in the email. Is that is that what you no, mean? No, no. So what I what I do is usually once I have maybe four or five or six new responses uploaded to my website mm -hmm. I put them into an email and I have an email list with I don't know how many people now maybe 700 people or something and um so I used to do it roughly once a week mm -hmm. I've been a little busier lately but mm -hmm. um, roughly once a week I would send out whatever new responses we had and then mm -hmm. I would also include you know videos on the topic related mm -hmm. articles mm -hmm. so i put those people on my email list um qu quite some time ago and they have never reached out to me even um for example reiner flummick i have a colleague who was interviewed by him about three times and this colleague told me that he told reiner flummick about the FOIs and about me and that, mm -hmm. you know, suggested that we do an interview. That was a long time ago. He told me to email Reiner and copy my, my colleague. And I did, I did it twice. And then I wrote back to um, Wolfgang Wodark mm -hmm. recently. That was a month or so ago. I did that because he was on a zoom call. They had finally had Dr. Andrew Kaufman and Dr. Stefan Lanka on to their Corona investigative committee mm -hmm. and it didn't it was they didn't I felt um they didn't treat Dr. Kaufman and Dr. Lanka very well mm. and they were acting very close-minded it was very disappointing and so when Wolfgang Wudarg was on a zoom call with a group that I get invitations to do the zoom calls um somebody was asking him you know would you please you you guys need to interview Christine about all these FOIs and he mm -hmm. said maybe so then I followed up again with an email that went to Wardark and um Reiner Fulmick and their lady Vivian I think mm -hmm. and um they never responded to me wow so I, I that is super like heartbreaking I, it, because it, I mean the, those are I've, we've been listening to these people and supporting them and I didn't even know that the well, brain was. I mean, we, we talked a little bit earlier about, uh, you know, you had that 
that belief that you know these people they're you know willing to complain about the government and things like that you know they they have this uh, uh, comfort zone that they're willing to go to but you know when you we we just had a uh, gentleman that we had met locally here uh, last week in in our episode and he wrote a book about uh, how he was doing a lot of similar research to what you're doing here back in the 70s around the JFK assassination. And he he actually worked with a group who was working with the leading um, counter argument to the narrative of what happened with JFK. And that gentleman, his name was Mark Lane, he had a book out and everything, and he was in a in a uh, uh, a chapter organization which would go out and try to educate people on what was happening with the the JFK assassination. And what he said he found over time was that this guy he was representing, this Mark Lane, was really stopping them from talking about what they were actually uncovering. He's like, "Well, no, no, we're we're only going to go to this point." You know oh, what I mean, and 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 yeah. so so then they ended up having to break away from Mark Lane, who was regarded as the expert on the conspiracy, and <laughs> yeah. and and then they became the Cowans and the the, the Kaufmans <laughs> around JFK back then. So it's just really interesting because uh, I think he had an opinion that Mark Lane was was probably the person put in place to essentially control the narrative of the counter argument. And, and, and so I just didn't know if, if, uh, cause I mean, th- these people are just so smart. How can they, how can they come out against these vaccines and, and not come out against the, the underlying structure? Yeah. And, and I mean, the thing too, is like this virology issue, it's simple. Like this is really simple. It's not, I can imagine like with the RFK, an assassination there'd be so many different pieces of evidence right. or with the 911 yeah. I, I can understand that would be far more complex right but with the virology it's like literally just a matter matter of okay they're telling us what they did it's right. not a mystery yeah it's they like solve, right right there it's you there. just read it we anybody know. can read it yeah yeah you saw the cdc saying it doesn't happen that they never yeah. do that in virology i have we have other institutions so we've made it really easy for people you know, you can listen to the people like Dr. Andrew Kaufman and others who are really good at talking about it. And then you can come and get it all confirmed with the FOIs, you know, and you don't have to read them all, even if you just go to the CDC or you, you know, so, um, yeah. And I think part of the reason, um, I think I started to say this earlier and I interrupted myself. Um, I lost my train of thought, but now you're, now you're, when you're challenging virology, this affects so many people who have been involved and they might feel complicit. They might feel like, okay, this is going to reflect badly on them. Yeah. Number one, they I'm were going to look stupid. <laughs> yeah. We, we were campaigning for safe, safer vaccines all these years and we didn't realize there's no virus. And, yeah. you know, are we going to look dumb? Or, you know, if you're a doctor and you injected people maybe for years and years, you you yeah. gave vaccines and you were promoting them, you know, even in good faith, or just you're part of a web. If you're a scientist or a doctor, you have all these colleagues, and now you're going to start saying, oh, shoot, like, I was wrong, something really yeah. wrong all these years. Like, and even for some parents, like a, a lot of people, like, that who weren't involved in making this happen. They're just mm-hmm. the victims, but 
maybe they feel badly, you know, they injected themselves, they injected their children, or yeah. it's just so deeply ingrained. There's like a lot of different reasons. Nobody wants to sound like a nutcase. No one wants to be the one to start saying it and worry about the repercussions. And Some of these people you know, have had Nobel Prizes, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and uh, yeah, and... Um, they're going to um, take like, my prize. Oh, back. you're thinking like Luke yes. Montagnier. Yeah. Luke, Luke, Luke yeah. Montagnier, he eventually admitted that they never purified. And mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, so it's like, I guess that's a lot touchier. There's a lot of different reasons why different people, and then some of them have financial, you know, like their career or, or someone like Dr. McCullough, he gets, you know, there's a website where you can look we up. Saw oh, I saw that <laughs> yesterday. Do you want to share yeah. on your screen there? <laughs> sure, I can share that. Um, I was like, I'm not trying to what? pick on Dr. Dr. Um, McCullough, but it is interesting to know these things. So, okay, I'll just go back. Um, I'll click on the menu item. So if anybody wants to see these. Uh, where it says communications with Peter McCullough and other freedom advocates. Um, we have a collection of email, it's mostly emails um, with different people where, you know, we're just asking them, like, can you prove there's a virus? Or, you know, usually that's the question I'm asking. So these are some of the ones with, that's my first one with Dr. McCullough. Mm -hmm. And so that was theirs was the second one and here's a third one so people can click on the links and read all the emails back and forth that was another gentleman who talked to dr mccullough here's um dr yaden now we were um, we, we were noticing i mean just like you're doing right here i mean there's so much information and and kind of uh just routing through it, you know, who the personalities are. I mean, you could almost start your own podcast a show and, and just kind of walk people through your threads. I could. You know? Yeah. I have, I thought about it at one point, but it's just so it's a lot of work I, right now. I have, I have, I think close to 20 or roughly 20 new FOIs on my computer that I need to process. And, wow. you know, sometimes it's work because I have to compile things and I have to redact and upload it and mm -hmm. fiddle around and then, Put it out there and um for example i've been preoccupied with other stuff i actually had court today so mm -hmm. i'll talk about that later maybe but it's <laughs> dr peter mccullough so this is a website someone brought to my attention it's uh, open payments data open payments data.cms.gov and then it's forward slash forward slash physician and if you click on it i'll just show it's a website where you can put in look up a doctor i think this is probably just for the us uh, i could be wrong and you can get information on the payments that they've been getting from that's pretty crazy years. <laughs> yeah so this is just 2021 so there's different charts so this is for dr mccullough so the orange is the us mean and you can't even see it like it's basically zero i guess wow and Dr. McCullough is like 350,000 and oh, he went a little lower probably because of the things that he's been saying lately. Right. But, <laughs> but you know, but now this I would mean, be like for, for told, research. Is that what it is? Uh, well, I guess they get, you know, speaking engagements. Oh, okay. Knows, okay. But all. I don't think it's, um, I don't, well, here you go. Consulting fee compensation for services other than whatever honorary. I guess sometimes, you know, if they're, they're asked to travel somewhere, go to a conference or, mm -hmm. oh, those amounts are very tiny. So it's mostly consulting and compensation 
I guess like an other category. And it shows you these are the top 10 companies that he got money from. So if you're getting money from these pharmaceutical companies and you're relying and you're used to getting $350,000 <laughs> roughly a year, and then, you know, you can see it went down, I'm sure because of the things that he has said, if he were to go around telling people there's not even a virus, he'd probably be down here by <laughs> zero. They'd no be more, him. they have to be self-funded at that point. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think there's all kinds of different reasons. And then we come to Steve Kirsch. He's, um, yeah. Which, which, when I first started reading that thread on him, I I didn't really remember who he was. And then you pointed out, I think in somewhere in the thread there that he, um, was on a podcast with Robert Malone, uh, Brett Weinstein podcast. And, and, uh, you know, he made a lot of claim. I think that was in your thread. You, You had talked about that podcast he, i'm trying to remember how it got started with steve kirsch I th- oh he started a blog well I'll, my memory is so bad but look i can see here how it got started so he had he wrote a blog saying yes the virus has been isolated mm-hmm. i think maybe what you're thinking of there was something i had an exchange with jeremy hammond yeah that might have been i wrote him an open letter and he had done an interview and it was featured in a dr marcola article mm-hmm. Doc, steve kirsch and i have had quite a few back and forth and the reason i have uh, issues just letting people know he has misrepresented me multiple times to well at least twice on his blog that i know of and then i know he's been going around telling people things about me as well that are not true so it all started out he had he wrote a blog saying yes the virus has been isolated and all these people saying that it hasn't or you know whatever he said i forget and so I wrote an open letter in response to him. And so you can read that. And then we had several things back and forth after that. And there might so be a debate of, happening. <laughs> I not was not between myself and Steve Kirsch, and I'll <laughs> explain why. So what happened was, um, so I wrote that open letter and had a good reaction to that. And then um, my memory is terrible. I get things out of order. But then he suddenly, he emailed me for the first time. He actually contacted me directly. And he was, um, you can see the email here. He's saying, he's challenging me to a five-hour Zoom call. Yeah, I was like, my what? Ex- <laughs> his experts versus me. So his team versus me for five hours. Seems reasonable, said, Christine. Yeah. <laughs> I know what's wrong with me, right? So I said, no, I don't want a five-hour Zoom call with anyone. Thank you very much. And um, it was so weird because every time Steve Kirsch has ever contacted me, he writes his email as though we've been talking just yesterday. (laughs) Uh, It's just weird. Like, it's really weird. And so I'm like, "Uh, no, that's not going to happen. So then he goes off on his blog and he writes to his his followers all these oh now he's captain flexible if she's done early we end early uh she can bring many people if she wants less time i'm fine with that he did not tell me any of that okay like so he goes off and he makes it sound like i offered her whatever she wants and she just said no that is not what happened and that's why i put the emails here for people to know mm-hmm. so um and isn't anyway. that isn't that the power oh, of the of the internet is that we're all in these ecosystems, you know, and, and nobody sees what the other ecosystem is yeah. reporting. You know what I mean? So we're all kind of pushing out. I mean, 
is different messaging. Uh, yeah. We're thinking we're having the same conversation, right? Because you're having an email conversation, but it ends up being reflected differently. Me. Yeah, and it was very frustrating because he has a huge following and a lot mm. of people really, really respect him. And, you know, but he, so what he did, he misrepresented me there. And then because he misrepresented me in that way, I was like, okay, if I can have a team too and we can be more flexible, yeah, we can arrange something, no problem. Dr. Kaufman agreed to participate. Dr. Nice. Tom Cowan agreed to participate. Sam and Mark Bailey, Dr. Sam and Mark Bailey agreed to participate participate. Dr. Stefano Scoglio in Italy, he agreed to participate. It was like, no problem. <laughs> Let's do Good this. team. A team. We were all set. And then what happened was um, I was initially the one corresponding with Steve. And then I got charged criminally because I served a notice to the medical officer of health here in the community where I live, the local medical officer. I sent him, I served him a notice of trespass, liability, cease and desist. And we did it at his home only because um, we were physically prevented from serving him at the health unit where he works. Like literally they hired security guards. They won't let people go in the building if they don't want them there. I literally went there once by myself, just a woman by herself. I'm just like, kid, I'm just gonna go inside and serve him at his office, uh, no big deal. And they literally wouldn't let me in. They called the police. I got a trespass ticket, yada, yada. Oh, my gosh. So the only reason uh, we went to his house was because we couldn't do it at his office. So I got charged, and I was very stressed and preoccupied. So Dr. Kaufman offered to take over, and he was making the arrangements with Steve. And Dr. Kaufman did a fair bit of work. He came up with a debate question, an outline. He was trying to plan it, you know, so that we would have ground rules and to keep everything, you know, on an even civil. pool, mm -hmm. pool mm -hmm. and civil, yeah, so that it would be as beneficial as as possible. So, but then he wasn't really communicating properly with um, Dr. Kaufman, and it seemed like he was more just looking for sensational things to say on his blog. So Dr. Kaufman gave up on him. Uh, I don't want to speak for Dr. Kaufman, but basically something like that happened. And then I get this email out of nowhere from Steve. Where is this one? Oh, sorry. Maybe I'm on the wrong page. Is that the measles one? He writes to me. He writes, yeah, the measles one. He writes to me all of, all of a sudden. And he says, I think I can enlarge that one. Yeah. Is that the one? Uh, Maybe I got the wrong yeah, one. Yeah, I don't think that's the measles one. Okay. So there. anyway, there's another one on here that he suddenly starts emailing me about, there's so many of them, I won't be able to find it now. <laughs> there's one in there, there's PDFs too, um, where he's suddenly saying to me, I don't see why I should bother debating you if you won't even answer me as to whether the measles virus exists. Yeah, I remember <laughs> reading that one. It was out of nowhere. I was like, this is the first time you're asking me, Steve, like, what are you up to now? And sure enough, he goes off and he writes on his blog, she won't even answer. I'm not going to waste my time with this woman. She won't oh. say whether or not, right? Like literally, and you can see when you find the email, it's in here somewhere. I literally responded to him in 11 minutes and I answered his question. <laughs> and yet he went off and told people, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not debating. I forget <laughs> this. Oh my God. So that was the first time things went kind of crazy. Oh, and then... McCullough was mentioned on here because then at one time on 
Dr. Trozzi's website, Dr. Mark Trozzi, there was something where Peter McCullough, Dr. I think it was Dr. Ryan Cole, Dr. Roger Hodkinson, and someone else, they were debating, they were challenging anyone to debate them on COVID. So I contacted them and I said, yeah, let's debate on COVID. <laughs> They're like, you're not the right people. <laughs> yeah, literally, they turned out they had a form on one of their websites. You have to apply to even be considered. And um, virus isolation wasn't one of the topics that they were offering. And so I was kind of chiding them about that. And Steve starts contacting me saying, oh, um, what he was saying and he's saying well no no we're gonna do i'll have one of my experts put something in writing and that will settle it well that never happened wow anyway so that was the second time i was challenging steve's people and they wouldn't do it and steve was copied on those emails and he was not interested in doing a debate mm -hmm. and then what happens uh recently i started again i don't know where he starts emailing me like we were just talking five minutes ago and he's talking about a debate again, and he's trying to demand who's going to be on my team. He wants me to confirm that I have all these people lined up, including Dr. Stefan Longo. These are very busy people. I don't just snap my fingers and tell them, hey, we're doing this. Right. Um, but Steve is demanding that I get all this confirmed, and he hasn't told me a single person yet that he'll have on his team. So I'm like, Steve, no, that's not happening. Twice you ran away from a debate. So you confirm first, you announce it publicly, and then I'll talk to my people and see my people. <laughs> Your people, I like that. I like it. Good to have people. My, my colleagues, right? I'm not yeah. even, like, uh, don't, I've never had emails from Stefan Monk unless they, he was writing to other people and I got copied. So I don't just snap my fingers for Dr. Monka. <laughs> yes. um, but Steve seems to think that's how it works. Let's so, call him right now, Christine. Call him yeah, right now. Just, <laughs> oh my gosh. So I. But you're telling the story show, yeah, about. Yeah, show, you show that you're serious. You announce this. You start telling us who you have confirmed. And of course, it never happened. So. But you're sharing the story about you had to actually go to your health officials a door to be able to deliver the cystocyst yeah. notice the page and he too. slammed the door in your face <laughs> he did and there's video of it all yeah he's such a funny man because this page might look mean when you first see it but if you knew like the stuff going on with this man you would understand so he was new to our community in december of last year and so i started contacting him and these emails are on my website just politely, um, I was letting him know, and I, I forwarded him a notice I had sent to Peterborough Police, I think. And I was letting him know, I need, I need to have a meeting with you. I need to talk to you about this. I was, I was actually trying to get a meeting with the director of operations at Peterborough Public Health. Mm -hmm. And at one time, I told him, "Listen, I need a meeting. I need to serve you and Thomas Pickett because, you know, they, they just." They're not basing what they're saying on science. They're lying to people and they're terrorizing people. So I let them know. And of course, they wouldn't set up a meeting for me. Thomas Piggott never answered to a single email. He's the actual medical officer. He never responded to even one email that I had ever sent him. Uh, I, in one email, I said, I accuse you of fraud and crimes against humanity. Will you face me so that I can serve you notice? Mm -hmm. He doesn't respond. 
Then I tried going to the health unit where he works, and that's when I was physically blocked. That was January 5th, and I had a page for that too. <laughs> but anyway, there's a page where you can see how I was attempting to serve. So then eventually we said, okay, um, what had happened was some colleagues, there had been other people trying to serve him too, and there's some really amazing, wonderful activists here in Peterborough. And they had had a protest on his street, um, like about mid-January, something something in there. I think it was a Saturday. Thomas Bigot wasn't even home. And mm -hmm. of course, again, he's acting like he's being terrorized. Right. And it was just a peaceful protest because when those people protested at the health unit, they got treated really badly too. And I think some of them got tickets from the police. So they said, fine, we're not wanted at the health unit. We'll go to his home and protest. So they did that. And then I had tried to serve him and I couldn't at his office. So I said to one of my contacts, you know, <clears throat> maybe I should try serving him at his home since you guys know you have the address, you know where he lives. So we ended up um, planning it out and it was not at all a protest, but it was just nothing to do with protesting. Mm -hmm. We knew, and around that time, the Canadian government had introduced a new section of the criminal code specifically to discourage people from communicating, you know, basically from any kind of COVID dissent. Oh, it was wow. a, a section of the code specifically focused on um, intimidation of healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. And so we knew we knew this was because of covid there were protests going on because of covid and they're trying to silence people right so we're like okay this is really serious and i don't want to get anybody in trouble but i would like to do this and serve him it's not a protest it's just to go to his home but it'd be really good to have witnesses and to have people who could film it for me so i'll share my screen again so people can or actually maybe this page is not that yeah you're sharing oh my am still sharing yeah. so i'm spaced out i'm tired <laughs> uh, I had court today. It was yes. my third time in the last week and a half. So we went to his home and the video is here. My colleague had this wonderful colleague who came up on the porch with me and we purposely planned everything so it would be as low-key. Not No reasonable person would be intimidated or alarmed or anything. Mm -hmm. So eight, eight of us went. It was in the evening. It was quarter to seven when we went. We didn't all we par parked a distance away and we met in a parking lot. We didn't all walk together as a group because we didn't want to draw attention. We didn't want to alarm people what's going on, right? So we split up into tiny groups. So it wasn't like anything. And then, so I just went with one other person, this gentleman who was, went on the porch with me. That gentleman didn't say a single word the whole time we were on the porch. He was there strictly to film and thank God he did. The other people, when we went up to the porch, there were a few people across the street on the sidewalk, not even in front of Thomas Pickett's house, but across the street. And there were other people up the street. So it was like nothing going on, just two people going up to someone's porch, knocking on the door. And I knocked and you can, there's, like I said, there's two videos here. One is the one that my colleague made and then there's some uh, censored video, but it shows part of the This is from Thomas Pigott's own surveillance camera. This is what he gave to the police. He censored it or somebody has censored it anyway. So that the beginning part of the visit where we were like really friendly, like, hi, how are you? It's so nice to meet you. They took that out. And anyway, so the, and part of the 
plan. One of my colleagues had this great idea because it was like, okay, I've been telling this man I want to serve him. They're hired security goons so that we can't. So if he sees me walking up to his house with papers, you know, he's that's going to be a tip off and he might not open the door. We're just trying to get the job done to serve. So one of my colleagues said, you know what, I have a Tupperware container. How about we put the papers in the Tupperware container? Then he'll think, you know, that we're going to welcome him to the neighborhood because he was new to the neighborhood. And then you can just hand him the, the Tupperware and then he'll open it and he'll find that he actually got served. <laughs> okay. So it was all planned to be as calm, low key, no alarm, no nothing. So we go up to the door and it starts out really friendly, no problem. And then I guess he noticed the plan, my colleagues were gonna gradually slowly come over and stand not on his property, just on the sidewalk in front of his house. And the first plan originally, they were gonna have candles to do like a vigil for people who were harmed by the injections, but it was a windy cold night, so they couldn't do that. So they were just starting to gather um, and anyway, they weren't even all there yet. And he panicked and he, like, he somehow, I guess, started to realize this might have something to do with COVID. He started to slam the door. Well, I didn't even, I had to try, like, try to get the lid off. It all happens in a split second. I'm suddenly going to panic. I hadn't planned for this. So I suddenly tried to get the lid off and get, you know, and it was hopeless. Like, I had no chance. The door slammed in my, you know, as I'm trying to put the papers, the papers fell down. I just raised my voice a tiny bit and I said, you've been served. And I put the papers in the mailbox. He picks up the phone. He tells the police, I have the 911 call now, it's on this page. He's telling them there's 10, at least 10 people. They're on my property. They tried to hit me, Whoa. yada, yada, yada. Basically he's <laughs> being terrorized. <gasps> then later in the evening, he changed his story to, I did hit him. I lashed out at him and I actually what? hit his right now call. Yeah. And um, anyway, long story short, uh, myself and one of the colleagues, but it was not even the man who was on the porch. It was one of the colleagues who was there live streaming so that the public would see what we're doing because we're not there to terrorize somebody. We're literally serving someone and doing like public education and creating proof that we had been peaceful, quiet. We weren't doing anything wrong. That man and I got charged criminally with two charges each. Wow. So for the last five months, we've been going through that. But anyway, so I thought it was really funny, actually in the beginning, like I never dreamt we would get charged because we mm -hmm. told the police, um, they came right away, like instantly. And we're, we're like, couldn't believe it. We're like, you gotta be joking. He said that, yeah. like we have video. And they wouldn't look at the video and they said, wow. well, no, no, nobody's getting charged. So, you know, they, we don't need to worry about the video. We'll just go and talk to him. They heard our side and then they were going to speak to him. I was not worried about it because it's like we have video. It shows right. we were mm -hmm. perfectly nothing, nothing inappropriate happened. And excuse me, then. Um, but anyway, it didn't matter. The first uh, police officer who investigated refused to lay any charges, even a trespass, nothing. Wow. She would not do it. And she told him, I'm not laying charges. They didn't do anything wrong. She actually said I was kind and considerate. Oh, wow. <laughs> said, yeah, we have the police notes. So he said, well, I'm, I'll call Scott Gilbert, who was the chief of police. So apparently he made the call 
and then that officer got called into the station. She was told that Scott Gilbert and a man named John Lyons, who acts as inspector, they were insisting that charges be laid. Mm -hmm. And still this officer said, no, I'm not doing it. They didn't do anything wrong. And they suggested certain charges. And she said, no, they don't. It's not applicable. I won't do it. So then they suggested other charges, the one that we actually, what we ended up getting. She -hmm. wouldn't do it. She said, no, she explained again. It's not applicable. That's no, it doesn't. They had a right to go to the door. It's not a trespass even to go to someone's door. Mm-hmm. And um, we, they were just there to serve. And that's what they did. So, wow. so she said, if you are insisting on charges, you will have to reassign the case to someone else. And so they did. And they assigned it. And three gentlemen got involved. And the lead investigator was a man named Lee, Sh- Lee Schubert. Mm-hmm. And Lee Schubert just turned a blind eye to the fact that there's no actual evidence to, he told, he told the police that not only had I lashed out at him and hit him, but I spoke to him in a very threatening voice, what? which I did not do. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. That's oh what he my said. Gosh. And um, these three cops, they just went along with it. And next day, both my colleague Tyler who again was not even on Thomas's property nobody was making noise there were no signs it was nothing we have a right to protest anyway but I mean I'm just making clear it wasn't even a protest like mm-hmm. it wasn't yeah and yet yeah, we got charged criminally so wow. so with this act of bravery and speaking up and going for it how can we help and how can we support how can people support you um, I think the most important thing is just share the information, share what you know. Oh, and I'll bring up one other page. This is actually, there's another page on my website where you can find, we've looked, oh, yeah, we've looked into lots of other alleged viruses. So you can share this page too. Um, basically all the big famous alleged viruses, nobody has any records on those either. And then um, did I you, also have a page. Did yeah. you you message you mentioned something before we started recording about bacteria too? I think or yeah. So we did um, that one's another virology page focusing on control experiments, and then we have this one. We haven't done as much with bacteria, so I'll just explain briefly. So I don't know anyone who debates the existence of bacteria, just to be clear. Nobody's Mm -hmm. questioning the existence of bacteria. Mm -hmm. The question is, have they been shown scientifically to cause disease? Because we're led to believe that that is the case. So we have done some, uh, like I said, most of my folks is on the viruses, but we have done some. So what we've been asking here um, is, do you have any experiments where purified, certain bacteria was purified and, and controlled experiments were carried out to show that it actually causes the disease that we're told that it causes. And we also ask that if Koch's postulates were satisfied and mm-hmm. Koch's postulates are um, some simple logic based steps that were postulated years ago to, to test out this idea that perhaps um, some tiny little thing causes disease. And, and it was, was meant to be the gold standard, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It turns out it's never, I don't think it's ever been done for any bacteria, including by Robert Koch, who was the scientist 
the Koch's postulates are named after him. Mm-hmm. He was the one that put them out there, but it turns out that even he never actually satisfied them with any bacteria. So we have, this is mostly when I'm doing this, I'm just asking the CDC because we don't have time to ask hundreds of other, you know, institutions for every virus and every bacteria. So I focus mainly on CDC. And so we have the CDC admitting they do not have anything to show that the um, bacillus anthraxis, I guess, I don't know how you say it, um, Mm -hmm. that it actually causes um, anthrax and satisfies Koch's postulates. Legionella bacteria that supposedly causes Legionnaire's disease, they don't have anything there. My colleague in New Zealand, Michael S., he did uh, all the big... um, institutions in New Zealand, the Ministry of Health or Crown Research Institute. Uh, This is an institution that I think they deal with the livestock because, you know, sometimes animals get destroyed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because they're told that, um, so he asked them, he he asked them about both the human and the the animal version for TB. Apparently there's two different bacteria that are said to infect animals and humans mm-hmm. and then this other i forget what this institution is exactly but anyway they had some involvement in this claim so now christine none are, of them are, had are, any records are, are you growing a team at all or well it's all informal we don't have like a formal team like on this is my website i was the one that started it Michael S. in New Zealand, he was the first person who ever contacted me and he said, do you mind if I use that wording and I'll ask institutions here? And I said, sure. And we've been in close contact ever since. And he's done a huge amount of work, especially for New Zealand. And he's done other things like more behind the scenes. And he has something too. So he looked into Salmonella. There was nothing there. And I'll just bring up, there's another page I want to show you about, because I have a page that's focused on, it's not any FOIs, it's um, it's for people who are new to the topic then of virus isolation and also the PCR tests, and they want to f- understand like what's going on with COVID. Yeah. So I collect a lot of really good interviews and articles here. Awesome to learn yeah i haven't updated it lately but there was already tons of really great stuff here and then as you go further down the page um it's my older material where you'll get more information so we're not there yet um showing stuff from like government uh, institutions i'm not there yet showing stuff about the pcr tests these are from documents of the fda the cdc um, Christine, you win the prize for the longest web pages ever. <laughs> it's not that but I, it's, it's the just, best content. It's good content. It's great. Trying, yeah, I know it's a bit overwhelming, but especially as you go down lower, there's like some good stuff from um, to teach people more about you know how the PCR test actually works and what that really is and what it isn't. I was just trying to think if so, we, we've talked about on the podcast, you know, how how would COVID have ended up differently if Carrie Mullis was alive? You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, to to, yeah, to speak yeah. to PCR. I mean, he already did. Right. But I mean, in, in right. clips. But I mean, to be able to specifically speak to it in relation to COVID, it seems like we'd be in a totally different place. But we yeah, sh- we I share think. the information from your website. I think you have yeah, also donation you. donation options, right, to oh, help with your I, work. I do on the FOI page, the main one for the COVID nineteen. There is a PayPal button up at the top, so if anybody 
is able. Um, that's always very much appreciated. Um, yeah. And yeah, just I think share the learn yourself first and know that it's not a complicated issue. There's lay people like myself. I was working with cancer researchers, but I was a number cruncher. I wasn't, uh, I, I'm not, I wasn't a scientist. I don't have training in chemistry or these related fields. So, but it's just simple logic when mm -hmm. it comes to this spherology issue. So anybody can understand. We didn't even go into the sequencing, but maybe another time we can talk about that. Yes. Um, well, and, and it really, anybody can understand. It, it really points to how easy it is because of the fact that they don't want to engage with it. Mm -hmm. You know, instead yeah. of giving you the reason, well, here's why it's complicated. You know, they, they just say, look, we, we're beyond that. We don't need to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, let's not put any energy there. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's a huge threat because it's a huge, huge industry yeah. and so many related offshoots industries. Um, yeah, it's a very big threat, I guess, to some people. So well, Christine, we're very thankful we are, for yeah. your work. So thankful, thankful for, for you, you meeting with us today. Whatever we can do to help. Yeah, just reach Don't. out to us. Yes. If you have new information that you want to get out or anything, then please uh, consider our, our platform as an opportunity to get that media at least you know For recorded. Sure. And then you know you can disseminate it to the people that, that uh, follow your efforts. And we're sending Thank you, you good so vibes, prayers, and we'll donate more. And whoever's listening, if you can donate... We'll share all the links in the show notes. Oh, and I, I, I know I had, Hello. I did have one last question. <laughs> yes. Okay. Asked with fluoride. Okay. It, okay. It, yeah, it's, yeah. it's just so weird that, that, um, cause I didn't really understand the background of the name of the website and all of that until you explained oh, okay, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we just had a big debate on our telegram group, which by the way, follow us on telegram <laughs> at the collective resistance okay, podcast, yes, yes. but we were talking about dental fluoride. Do you, is there a difference from a danger perspective of dental fluoride to um, fluoridated water? I'm not sure what you mean by dental. Like, oh, do you mean like the fluoride? Fluoride, when, like, when, yeah, toothpaste in toothpaste, yeah. Um, or did you did you well, get into that at all, or was just the fluoridated water? A little water? bit. Like, I think typically they use, well, I have, we had thought, you know, there there is like um, pharmaceutical grade sodium fluoride, and I believe that's normally what, gets used more in the products like toothpaste okay. and but the thing is with uh what they used to always tell us because we would complain about the particular chemical that they use and say you know you don't have any safety studies on that chemical and they would always tell us oh it doesn't matter because it dissociates meaning once that molecule gets in the water it breaks down and so you end up with the fluoride ions regardless of what type of fluoride you use so um in terms of what kind is in the water but it does still matter because depending on which agent you use it can affect the ph of the water okay. differently i believe and the other things that are in you know like in the hydrofluorosilicic acid you have arsenic and lead contamination and all sorts of other things so mm -hmm. it matters what you put in the water and but in terms of like is the fluoride in toothpaste safe if that's what you're getting well i mean no. I, yeah i mean it, it has similar deleterious effects through yeah okay it, it absolutely and i mean that's why it says on the fluoride packages you know they're for children they're supposed to just use a tiny little pea-sized bit and if they're like three years old or so just like a little rice size grain mm -hmm. and they even recommend if only use it if they're at risk for cavities. Mm -hmm. If they're not even at risk and they're really little, don't even use fluoridated toothpaste. Yeah. And yet, um, 
you know, then the commercials have these great big gobs and they, but they're telling people like, <laughs> just use that tiny little bit and make sure the child spits it out. Everyone is a hundred, all the organizations are hundred percent clear. Make sure they spit it out. If they swallow more than that, call, med get medical help. Poison control. Poison control. <laughs> and yet, I'll just tell you quickly and then I'll let you go. So the amount that's on your average pea-sized bit of toothpaste is a quarter milligram. And yet in your optimally fluoridated drinking water, 350 milliliters, you get a quarter milligram. Wow. You end up with the same amount of actual fluoride. Wow. So it's it's completely insane. Yeah. Well, hey, I thank you for that. I just thank wanted to you. close loop yeah. on that. So again, thank you so much. And just let us know if there's anything additionally we can do for you. Thank yes, you. we appreciate, appreciate you so your much. work. Thank okay. you. Same to you guys. Bye, Christine. Take care. God bless. Bye. God bless. All right, Fabi. Well, that, that was so much more than I was anticipating. Yes, and she had a long day she did she was she already was so in court. gracious we to come and talk so to much. us and we're so grateful for the work that she does so yeah again if you guys want to continue the conversation go to telegram group again we're on twitter now just announcing episodes really at uh, tcrp12 uh follow us there and then please like uh our podcast or provide comments if your application that you're using to listen to podcasts allows for that go in there and put your feedback because uh, people are just you know looking for that engagement so uh anyway we appreciate you listening and we'll be back next week with another episode of the collective resistance podcast fabby what do you want to tell everybody hey everyone thanks for listening we appreciate you stay healthy stay safe and stay curious <laughs>